Well, good morning. Please be seated. So good to see you, and I do want to welcome you here today, especially if you're a guest. Thanks for, for being here, and I want to invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Have you ever been stumped, like just flat-out confused, baffled, could not figure something out for the life of you? I remember in the eighth grade, I was in math class one day, and I was pretty good at math, or so I thought at the time, until my teacher wrote a math problem on the board. And along with a few numbers, she wrote an X and a Y in the equation. And I thought for sure that she had made some kind of mistake, like maybe our our math teacher was having an off day. You don't mix letters and numbers together. But that was the day I was introduced to something called algebra. And boy, I was stumped. (laughs) Another confusing, head-spinning moment for me came when I encountered Romans chapter 9. It was my freshman year of college, and I was attending a Baptist university, getting a degree in biblical studies. And I walked into a debate that my friends were having. It was quite heated and intense. They were using words that I didn't really know much about, like predestination and election. And one guy, he said, I'm a Calvinist. And another guy, he said, no, I'm an Arminian. And I thought, man, I thought both you guys were Americans. I had, I had no idea what they meant. And the debate they were having that day centered around their differing interpretations of Romans chapter 9. And I thought, guys, come on. Surely it's not that complicated. I know the Bible. Let, let me check this out for you. So I went to Romans 9 myself. And I read it. And I read it again. And I read it again. <laughs> And I was stumped, more stumped than I've ever been. Because listen, I grew up in the church. I knew all the stories. I got all the badges on my Awana vest. I heard all the sermons, devotionals, and lessons. I'd been to camps, conferences, and retreats. But I could not ever remember learning about or even reading Romans chapter 9. So I called my dad, who was also my pastor growing up, and I grilled him with all the hard questions. And then I called the guy who led my discipleship group in high school and asked him all the questions. And I began reading books and articles and listening to sermons. And after all that, and after years of continued study and thinking and wrestling with this, I am now slightly less stumped. <laughs> Romans 9 is one of the most hotly debated and mysterious chapters in the entire Bible. Some of you are coming into this chapter today like I did. You've not spent much time dealing with this, thinking about this. You've never heard a sermon or lesson on this chapter. And some of this is going to sound confusing and possibly even contrary to things you've always thought. Then there are others of you who are more familiar with this chapter. You've been taught to interpret it one way or another. If you come from a more reformed background like a Presbyterian church, you heard it explained one way. And if you come from a more Methodist or Pentecostal background, well, you heard it explained a different way. And so you already have some thoughts and opinions on this topic. Then there are others of you still who may love Romans 9. You enjoy having debates and arguments about this topic and proving how right you are. If that is you, I want you to see me after service. And I will be happy to tell you about some other churches in our area that you will love. (laughs) I will even send a thank you. I will even send a nice reference letter for you. (laughs) Because here's the deal: Romans 9 is hard. It's just plain hard. And it deals with perhaps the greatest mystery in the Bible: God's sovereignty 
and man's responsibility. The Christians have been debating and arguing about this one chapter for 2,000 years. I'm not exaggerating with that. So let me just break the news to you. If Christians have not figured out all the answers by now, we are not going to figure them out today. I don't have all the answers. If you do, that's wonderful. Again, please see me after service. (laughs) But I'm still learning. I'm still growing. So I do humbly ask this morning that you have mercy on me today as I attempt to unpack this. And I ask that we approach this chapter with humility and charity and patience. You may disagree with something I say. That's okay. You may think I'm wrong. I may be. You may think I'm a complete doofus. That's because I am. (laughs) But, hey. (laughs) Wrong spot. No. But most importantly, here's how I want us to approach this chapter. Here's the mindset we've got to have when it comes to Romans 9. Why did God put this chapter in his book? And what does he want to teach us today? Paul did not write this chapter to to start debates and split churches. You know what's ironic? Paul actually wrote Romans chapter 9 to bring unity to Gentile and Jewish Christians in Rome. This was not written to bring conflict or confusion, but it was written to help us, like all of Scripture, to equip us for every good work. So let's not get lost in the debate and the questions. And please don't sit here and try to read between the lines of everything I say and try to figure out what I really believe. (laughs) Let's focus in and let's see why God has this word for us today and what it means for our lives today. In order to answer that question, we do need to start with the context. All right, let's remember that Paul wrote Romans 9 through 11 to explain why the Jewish people, who were God's chosen people in the Old Testament, had, for the most part, rejected their Savior, their Messiah, Jesus. And why Gentiles, who were not God's chosen people, who had no connection to the Old Testament, had readily begun to accept Him. Last week, if you were here, we looked at the first 13 verses of Romans 9. We answered this question, is God faithful. In light of the Israelites rejecting Jesus, does God still keep his promises? Can we trust his word? And we said resoundingly, yes. God is faithful and he will be faithful to us. Today we're going to see Paul answer another similar but different question. It's this question right here. Is God fair? Let's look at the question. Break it all down and apply it at the end. Look with me at Romans chapter 9. We'll start with verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Now, this question right here doesn't come out of a vacuum. All right, we need to remember how Paul began chapter 9 last week. He began by expressing his sadness that the majority of his own people, the Jewish people, had rejected Christ. And then he began to explain why they had rejected Jesus despite receiving all the promises and privileges they had. He explained that being a true Israelite was never about ethnicity. That's what the Jews thought. They believed that because they shared the same DNA as Abraham that they were automatically in, that they were a part of God's family. As Paul clarified, that was never the case. Not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Abraham had other descendants like Ishmael and Esau who were not a part of God's people. For God chose to carry on his promise through Isaac and then through Jacob. But why did he pick those guys instead of the other ones? 
Well, this is where things got a little controversial, if you remember. Paul said it wasn't because that Isaac and Jacob were better people or that they were more deserving. No, he said it was simply because God elected them. God has a purpose of election. That's the way Paul described it. And we see that electing purpose in the choosing of which Abraham's descendants to carry on the promise. But here's the deal. Naturally, we have an objection, a common objection to this idea of God choosing Jacob over Esau. We know it's common because Paul himself raised it. Seems as though many people have asked him this question many times. So if you have this question today, you are in good company. Here's the question. How is this fair? It kind of seems like God is playing favorites or that he's just being mean to Esau. I mean, that was my thought my freshman year of college. It doesn't seem right for God to love Jacob and to hate Esau, even though neither of them had done anything bad or good before they were even born. How is this fair? Is there injustice on God's part? And here's how Paul responds. He says, by no means. We should be used to that phrase by now. It means no way, absolutely not. For God to be unfair would be a violation of his own character. He is a God of fairness and justice who shows no partiality. Well, then what gives? Let's keep going. Look at verse 15. For he, God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. There are a whole lot of Old Testament quotes in Romans 9 through 11 because Paul wants to make absolutely clear that he's not making something up new. Rather, he's showing that this is how God has always operated. And here he quotes from Exodus 33, 19, when Moses was on Mount Sinai with God. And he does something really bold. He asks God to reveal himself. He says, God, show me your glory. God says, okay, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will reveal my name, Yahweh. And this is where the quote comes from. God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I don't think that needs a lot of explanation. It's pretty straightforward. Paul is defending God's fairness by saying, for God to have mercy and compassion on someone is entirely his choice. He's free to give it to whomever he would like. And the reason it's not unfair for God to do that is because none of us deserve it in the first place. Now, let's just pause right here for a second. This is so important for us to grasp. God does not owe anyone salvation or mercy or compassion in fact if God were to give us what we are owed what do you think would happen to us we've already seen the answer to that in Romans what we deserve Romans 6 23 the wages of sin is death we deserve the wrath of God for all eternity and this is where people get a little bit out of shape because they ask how could a loving God send people to hell But the real question we should be asking is how could a holy God let anyone into his perfect heaven? It would be completely fair for God to send all of us to hell right now because of our sin. And that will not win you a book deal, but it is true. If we're all sinners, we all deserve judgment, then for God to have mercy and compassion on one single person is extravagant grace. For anyone to be saved is a miracle of God's grace, and yet he saves all those who call on him because he's a gracious and merciful God. His mercy is the reason for our salvation. Look at verse 16. 
It says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Paul wants us to see that God's giving of mercy does not depend on us. Can't be earned. It's not about how much will we can exert or how hard we try. It's not as if God looked down on the earth and said, you know, that Micah is a good guy. I think I'll save him. He wouldn't have done that. No, God does not base our salvation on our goodness or our potential. And that's consistent with what we see throughout Scripture. Paul goes to great length in Ephesians chapter 2 to say, We are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of works, but it's a gift of God so that no one can boast. Salvation is not earned. It's a gift. It's a gift given. So if God's mercy is based entirely on him and he's free to give it to whomever he wants, then how does God determine who receives mercy and who doesn't? Well, here's where he begins to explain that with another Old Testament reference. Look at verse 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's where things get a little tougher. Remember Pharaoh, guy from Exodus? He was the ruler of Egypt. He had enslaved the Israelite people in his country. And Moses, he went to Pharaoh over and over and over again. And what what did he say? Say it with me. Let my people go. And each time, what did Pharaoh do? He refused. Because the Bible tells us that his heart was hardened. Now, the strange part is that sometimes the story tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And other times it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So which was it? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, it depends on who you ask. But let's notice here, Paul is not focusing in this section on the human side of the, qua- of the equation. He doesn't point to Pharaoh hardening his own heart, even though we know he did. He doesn't put the blame on Pharaoh. Rather, Paul points to God's sovereignty and raising up Pharaoh. He tells us that Pharaoh actually had a purpose in God's plan. God displayed his power. He proclaimed his name in all the earth through Pharaoh's refusal to let his people go through the plagues and ultimately through the miracle at parting the Red Sea. God's mighty power of salvation was demonstrated and it spread to people all over the world to the point where we meet Rahab later in Jericho. And she says, I've heard about your God. This tells us that God is sovereign even over evil. Now, God does not sin. He is never responsible for sin and evil. He does not delight in that. But it's clear he can redeem sin and evil and use it for his own glory and the good of his people. So this must be the big purpose to God's election. He has mercy on whomever he wills. He hardens whomever he wills. But his mercy and his hardness is not trivial. He's not just flipping coins up in heaven. But no, this is all a part of his sovereign plan to display his glory through all the earth that all people might see and know his greatness. Uh Uh-oh, hang on a second, here comes another objection. Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he, God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? Here's the the objection. This is exactly the question that some of you are thinking right now, at least those who are listening. Salvation depends on God and not me. And God will have mercy on whomever he wants and he'll harden whomever he wants. Then why are people held responsible for that? 
I mean, if God is truly sovereign over this whole thing, then doesn't that make us like puppets or robots? If God is going to do what God does, then does it even matter what I do at all? It's a very understandable question. And I want you to know we're not the first people to to wrestle with that question. As I said, Christians have been trying to figure this thing out for two millennia. What we're wrestling with here is the biggest tension in all of the Bible. It's the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. On one hand, we know that God is in control, that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's in Ephesians 1. And yet, we also know that we are held responsible for our own choices. We all have the freedom to choose or to reject God, to sin or to obey, and to deal with what comes. How do those two seemingly conflicting truths fit together? Here's the answer. You ready for this? Spent a lot of time on this one, a lot of studying, thinking. Here's the answer. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Seriously, we don't know. And anyone who says they do know is trying to sell you something. It's a mystery. It's beyond the understanding of our little pea brains. And that bothers some people that they can't figure it all out. Look, it doesn't bother me. In fact, I expect this. If it's true that God is, well, God, then doesn't it make sense that there will be some things about him that I'm just not able to understand? Of course it does. I'm human. I'm man. He's God. So here's where I come down on this. I believe God's totally sovereign, meaning he is in control of all things. Nothing is outside the bounds of his power or sway from the movement of atoms to the orbit of planets. Yet I believe my actions have real impact and consequences in the world. I believe prayer has the power to change things. Sharing the gospel can change someone's eternity, and believing in Jesus can change your life. I have no problem living in that mystery. This whole thing reminds me of a quote from an old theologian named A.A. Hodge. He said it like this. He said, does God know the day you'll die? Yes. Has he appointed that day? Yes. Can you do anything to change that day? No. Then why do you eat? To live. What happens if you don't eat? You die. Then if you don't eat and die, then would that be the day that God had appointed for you to die? Quit asking stupid questions and just eat. Eating is the preordained way God has appointed for living. There you go. Quit asking stupid questions. And surprisingly, this is kind of the way Paul answers this latest objection. Look at verse 20. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? I think Paul's getting a little fed up here. (laughs) I can't read this without yelling like an old southern preacher. Who are you? Who do you think you are, oh man? You think you can question God. That's what he's saying. Paul reminds us that we're creation. God is creator. And he uses this example of pottery, potter and clay. I've never done pottery. I'm one of the most unartistic people you'll ever meet. But occasionally, I do some coloring books with my daughter. And let's imagine that after I finish coloring a princess, that's what we always are coloring, with a purple dress, It would be quite strange for that princess to speak up and say, hey, why is my dress purple instead of pink? I would say back to her, hey, hey, I'm the guy coloring here, and I can color your dress however I want. Then I would promptly see a doctor for hallucinations. 
But that's the idea here. Despite how confusing this might seem, despite the questions this might raise, at the end of the day, we are created by God and belong to him. We have no right to say what God can and cannot do. He is God. You are not. And at some point, we have to accept the mystery, live in the tension, and just trust him. I think he knows what he's doing. Paul continues this image of the potter and clay. Look at verses 21 to 23. Has the potter... No right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? This is where things get even tougher than tough. And these verses really lie at the center of this whole debate. The key questions are, who or what are these vessels that God is making? What is a vessel of wrath? What is a vessel of mercy? And what does it mean that vessels of mercy are prepared beforehand? Well, Some say God is describing here the election of individuals for salvation. Others say, no, 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 God's talking about electing groups of people, nations of people. Some say God is talking here about electing people to eternity. Others say, no, 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 God is just talking about electing people to service. And I know this is confusing and we could spend a whole lot of time here and I could try to sell you on my view, which I've come to believe that Paul is talking here about the election of individuals to salvation. But I want to encourage you to study this for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. Don't just take your favorite author or Bible scholar's word for it. Don't just go with what sounds good to you. Study this for yourself, examine the different viewpoints, and resolve to believe what the Bible teaches to the best of your ability. Then make a commitment to hold it loosely and to respect the views of others. Understanding that this is tough stuff and that we're going to have people in our own congregation who disagree. But despite the varying views here, let's remember Paul's heart in this passage. He's trying to explain that God is fair, even though most of the people from his chosen nation have rejected him. And here's the part that kind of surprises me. Paul never tries to get God off the hook. He's getting hit with all these objections and questions about God's faithfulness and God's fairness. And he could have easily said, hey, it's not God's fault. Israel chose to reject God. They chose to sin against him. Pharaoh, he hardened his own heart. That's on him. And everybody who experiences God's wrath today, they chose to reject Jesus. It's their fault, not his. He didn't do that. He's going to get to that. We'll see that next week passage. But right here, he doesn't do it. He passes the buck back to God. He points the finger at him. And he tells us these verses deal with God's sovereign choice. Regardless of what view you hold, Paul wants us to see here who makes the vessels. God does. Who determines if they have honorable use or dishonorable use? God does. And why does he do this? Because he desires to make known the riches of his glory. Despite our limited understanding, God has worked throughout history and he is still working now to display his mercy on the backdrop of his wrath. To bring glory to his name through the saving of his people. See, we have a God who is not playing it by ear. He's not winging it, but who has been and always will be sovereignly at work. 
And we see this in one last way. Look at verses 24 to 29. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you were not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. One more time in this passage, Paul quotes from the Old Testament to show God's pattern of calling people to salvation who do not deserve it. God determined long ago to do this. And he uses a quote from Hosea to show that God's always promised to save Gentiles, to save people from all nations. Those who were not God's people, he says, I'm going to call them my people. He determined to save people who had no connection to the Israelites or to God's promises. But Paul also wants us to see that God's always determined to save some of Israel as well. He never promised to save all of them. Rather, he points back to Isaiah and he shows how God has always promised to save what he calls A remnant. It's a very important word we're going to talk about in the weeks to come. But the point is, God has always had a plan to have mercy and grace on people who don't deserve it. He did that for Israel. He did that for the Gentiles. He did that for me. And he still does it today. So let's close by asking the question, what do we do with this? What is our takeaway with all this stuff? Well, I got two things for you. Here's the first. Number one, we can trust in God's fairness. We can trust. One of the reasons this passage troubles some people today is because deep down, some of us believe we're owed salvation. This passage destroys that idea. I mean, this passage completely obliterates any ounce of self-righteousness we might have It tells us that all of us are sinners, wicked rebels who have turned away from God and deserve his wrath and judgment. Our only hope is that God have mercy on us and save us from our sins. And the truth of the gospel says that he has. He chose before the foundations of the world to save you. He chose to send his own son to die in your place and take the payment for your sins. And he chose to bring you into a relationship with him. See, we can trust in God's fairness because he has fairly dealt with our sin by putting it on Jesus on the cross. So despite our questions, despite the mystery, despite all the debate, we have a God who is merciful and compassionate and loves to save sinners. And those whom he saves, he will never let go. That's the purpose of God sharing us with this mystery of his election that we might have confidence in our salvation, that we might know it didn't come from us, that God might get the glory and that we might trust him even more because we're secure. God is a God of perfect justice and fairness, and through Jesus, he has dealt justly with my sin so that I can be with him forever. We can trust him. That's first. Here's the second takeaway. Number two, we can share in light of God's fairness. Because of God's purpose and election, he is going to save people. 
In fact, Revelation tells us that heaven will be filled with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. That truth should motivate us to take the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. See, God is going to have mercy on sinful people despite what they deserve. He's doing that now, and he will continue to do that till the day Jesus comes back. And we are the ones who have the responsibility to take this message to the world. And yes, sadly, many people are going to reject him. But no one will receive the wrath of God who does not deserve it. No one will be able to cry out from the flames of hell and say, God, this is unfair. The Bible says even though God is sovereign, we are still responsible for our own decisions. And we deserve the consequences we reap. That's the part I think we often miss in this debate. Regardless of what you've taught or what you believe, regardless of how little or how much you understand, yes, there's mystery, there's tension. Yes, some things we'll never fully understand until we get to heaven. But what God wants us to know without a shadow of a doubt, he has made abundantly clear. So clear that a child can understand it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Don't get so lost in the deep theological questions that you drown, that you miss the most basic of truths. Jesus saves. That's the message. That's the gospel that we trust in. That's the gospel we're called to share. Let's don't miss that today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.